Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. Service expressed not out of duty, but out of love for Christ. Remaining faithful and courageous in following Jesus while under fire. Being shaped not by what is easy or convenient, but by the truth of the gospel. Holding ourselves to a higher standard in representing Jesus to others. Not coasting on our reputation, but alertly living for Christ. Trusting and following the one who has the key to everything we need. These are the lessons we've learned from the letters in the book of Revelation. Correspondence from Jesus written to churches residing in Asia Minor in the first century AD. But messages for the church in every generation. Well, today we come to the last, but I assure you not the least, of those seven letters. We come to what is by far the most convicting and yet at the same time one of the most encouraging messages Jesus has for us. We come to one of the most quoted parts, in fact, of the book of Revelation, as this letter speaks to the heart of the brokenness of our human condition, of what keeps not God separated from us, but us separated from God. And what Jesus is about to call out, we'll hear in just a few moments, what Jesus is about to call out is ironically one of the hallmarks of the American spirit. This particular trait, in fact, is epitomized in a famous song that became not just a national, but a global sensation. It's a tune so popular, so reflective of what deep down we believe about ourselves that it is among the top songs played at retirement parties and incredibly, at least to me, funeral services. This anthem, which is arguably as American as apple pie, is none other than Frank Sinatra's My Way. An unabashed declaration of self-sufficiency, this beloved ballad champions the ideal of autonomy, that we are entirely responsible for our success or our failure. The defining measure of one's existence, to quote old blue eyes, is to say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels, to live life on our terms, to do things my way. But is the self-made person a reality or a dangerous fantasy? Is prizing our independence a cause for celebration or buying into a lie that ultimately leads us nowhere into being good for nothing? Let us listen carefully to Jesus' final word to us through these letters and find out. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. 
I counsel you. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we heard, this last letter, this final letter that Jesus delivers, is to a church in a place called Laodicea. Laodicea was a city founded in the middle of the 3rd century BC by Antiochus II, one of the Seleucid kings who ruled Syria after the death of Alexander the Great, who named the city after his wife, whom he then soon divorced. One of, the triangle of a sister, one of a triangle of sister cities situated in a rich fertile valley that was nurtured by the Lycus River, Laodicea was surrounded by the city of Heropolis, up the river, or excuse me, across the river to the north, and Colossae to the southeast, about 10 miles up the river. Built on the borders of Phygera, the city was situated at the intersection of the main east-west and north-south highways and served as what many historians have called a knot-in-the-road system, controlling all the commerce that flowed down the river valley all the way to the, co to the coast of the Aegean Sea. And in large part because of this, because of that location, all the trade and commerce, Laodicea, the wealth of Laodicea was almost beyond description. In fact, by the first century, Laodicea had become the heart of the banking industry in that part of the known world. Beyond banking, the city also cashed in on its lucrative textile production, as the Lycus Valley proved to be good for grazing sheep. And having perfected breeding these sheep that had a distinctive shiny black wool, the Laodiceans took this wool and fabricated it into a kind of tunic that became all the rage fashionable in the region. Laodicea also profited from its world-renowned medical school, particularly heralded for its compound medicines that treated various kinds of diseases. But one specific medicinal product held in high demand that might spark some interest in light of this letter was an eye salve made from a Phygerian powder that was reputed to relieve and heal weak and failing vision. And it's in this backdrop, so rich, so opulent, so reliant and proud of their agricultural, their financial and commercial prosperity, that the citizens of Laodicea in 60 AD, they were so well-to-do that when a great earthquake devastated several cities in the region in 60 AD, whereas others sought help from the Roman Senate to rebuild other cities, the Laodiceans said proudly, no thank you and refused any offer of financial assistance, choosing instead to do it their way, to rebuild out of their own fortunes. And so the city of Laodicea rose again from its ruins, more beautiful than ever, with not one trace of outside assistance. And in the midst of all this affluence and splendor was the church of Laodicea. Now, we're not told in the Bible who founded this community of faith, but from textual evidence in the New Testament, it's likely that one of the Apostle Paul's disciples, Epaphras, planted it. 
After all, from what we have in the scriptures, it appears Paul, when he came to Asia Minor, didn't get much beyond the city of Ephesus. On the other hand, Epaphras is identified as the leader and likely founder of the church in Colossae in the letter to the Colossians. And that city, Colossae, as we just heard moments ago, was one of Lady Osea's sister cities. So given their close proximity to each other, it's feasible that Epaphras planted the church in Laodicea as well. In fact, if you go back and read the letter to the Colossians, you go to the end, Paul specifically tells the congregation in Colossae and Laodicea to exchange and read the letters that he's written to both of them. But that's all then. This is now. In this letter, addressed to the church in Laodicea by Jesus, Jesus, in assessing their deeds, as you heard, gives them no word of affirmation or praise. Not a one. All Jesus has to offer them is his frank evaluation that they are neither cold nor hot in their relationship to him. And in the same breath as Jesus wishes aloud that they would be either one or the other, cold again or hot, Christ accuses them of being lukewarm. Now, as always in these letters, as we've hopefully noticed by now, the palpable imagery that Jesus uses to deliver his message is often shaped by the culture or the geography of the region. And here again, we have no exception. Remember how the city of Laodicea was bordered on the north, roughly six miles away by the city of Heropolis. Well, Heropolis was a city famous for its hot springs. Those hot springs, bearing a high mineral content, were valued for their therapeutic qualities. People from all over Asia flocked to the baths of Heropolis for healing. Meanwhile, the other sister city to the southeast of Laodicea, again, was the city of Colossae. Well, Colossae was tucked into the foot of a mountain, and the cold, steady stream of the runoff water from the mountain poured down to provide the city with cold, clear, refreshing water. And in between these two cities, was Lady Osea, a city, despite all it had going for it, that lacked its own natural source of water and had perpetual problems with the water supply it had piped in from the mountains to the south. After coming six miles through an aqueduct, the water arrived in Lady Osea lukewarm with a gritty concentration of calcium carbonate, all of which means that the waters of Laodicea were tepid, unclean, barely drinkable, more than likely to make one vomit. And in fact, a better translation of how Jesus describes his response to the lukewarmness of the Laodicean Christians captures this very sentiment. Because contrary to what we read in English, and I guess someone didn't want to offend anybody, but contrary to what we read in English, in the original Greek, Jesus doesn't politely suggest he's going to spit the church of Laodicea out of his mouth. No, Christ's reaction is in fact much more visceral. Much like the water of the city, the Lady Ocean church is so lukewarm, it's enough to make Jesus sick and cause him to throw up, to suddenly hurl them from his mouth. We need to be clear exactly what Jesus' critique is here. Because a common misunderstanding of this passage is Jesus wants us to be for him or against him and not just sitting on the fence whole, cold, and hot, as we often use these terms today, are viewed as polar opposites in terms of this passage. Either we have a passionate commitment for Jesus or a passionate commitment against Christ. 
Because of our modern tendency, again, to frame our feelings towards people and situations based on our temperature setting, we're either hot and cold about it, it's tempting to perceive Jesus' point to the Laodiceans as being, make a decision one way or the other about following me. But this is not right. Because if we stop and think about it, not only how they're portrayed in this passage, but just in general, hot and cold water are both good. When we're sweating and thirsty from exercise or, say, doing manual labor, some cold water is refreshing. It's like a tonic to our bodies. And similarly, when we're chilled, right, or need to relax and soothe our sore, aching muscles, a hot bath is luxurious. A spot of hot tea or coffee can warm us up. Hot water can heal. Cold water can refresh. Both have value. Both serve a meaningful purpose. Lukewarm water, on the other hand, is useless. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't soothe. Lukewarm water, if you've ever had some, is nasty. Receiving lukewarm water doesn't make us want more. It makes us gag. It makes us want to get the taste of it out of our mouths. So Jesus is not presenting two extremes on a continuum here. Being hot, on fire for Jesus, versus being cold, aloof, and opposed to Christ. And somehow stuck in the middle of some indecisive, wishy-washy place. The point is not any decision is better than no decision for Christ. Therefore, pick a side. No, the Heropolis hot springs and Colossae's cold mountain water were both beneficial. The lukewarm water of Lady Osea, on the other hand, had no value. It served no purpose other than to make people, including Jesus, sick. The problem, beloved, the problem in the Laodicean church is not one of indifference. The problem is not one of indifference. The problem in the Laodicean church is one of complacency. Being self-satisfied, perceiving themselves as self-sufficient, that this is the attitude of those in the Laodicean church, self-satisfied and self-sufficient, is evidenced as Jesus parrots back the prevailing mindset in the church. You heard it. Apparently, the Laodicean Christians view themselves as rich, prosperous enough from their own wealth and resources that they believe they've earned and acquired, and therefore, they don't need anything or anyone, including Jesus. In a city that prided itself on its riches, its prestige, and doing things their way, the church in Laodicea had metaphorically drunk the water. But just as that, the water of the city proved to literally be sickening, Jesus here exposes the distasteful reality of the congregation in Laodicea. Christ, who sees us, Man, we've learned that through these seven letters, I hope. Christ who sees us, not as we pretend to be. Christ who sees us, not as we try to appear to others. Christ who sees us, not as we attempt to fool ourselves into believing we look like. Christ who sees us as we are, holds up a mirror, a sobering mirror, which reflects our wretched and pitiful state. The wretched and pitiful state of the Christians in Laodicea. Because despite, regardless of all the vast financial capital that surrounds them, Jesus audits the Christians in Laodicea as in fact being poor, bankrupt, as for treasure that lasts. 
that endures in the kingdom of God. Despite boasting medicinal powers to restore failing physical sight, Jesus diagnoses the Laodicean Christians as only being able to see as far as their physical eyes allow. That they are blind. They are blind as to their vulnerability to the spiritual dangers before them. They lack the deeper vision, having eyes to see how the reign of God is breaking into the world and remaking it. And even though the residence of this city is known for its textile industry and high fashion, according to Jesus, the emperor has no clothes in the city of Laodicea, as they are naked, exposed, and without any righteousness of their own by which to clothe themselves before God without guilt or shame. Beloved, pay close attention. The harshest criticism... Jesus has to give in these seven letters. The harshest criticism Jesus has to give in these seven letters to the church over generations. It's not about legalism. It's not about false teaching. It's not about tolerance for wrongdoing. It's not about caving under the pressure of persecution. It's not about falling asleep at the wheel. The strongest warning Christ offers to his body is that of complacency of acting as if we've arrived in terms of our spiritual maturity, convincing ourselves we're all grown up when it comes to God, throwing around the name of Jesus, but functionally existing as though we don't need Christ, living our lives not out of a posture of absolute dependency, but instead being and doing things my way, our way, rather than following the way of the kingdom of heaven. Let me make this point even further. When you picture this church, the Laodicean Christians were not flagrant sinners. They were not flagrant sinners. They were likely respectable people who worked hard with a can-do attitude who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and trudged ahead, powering through the hard times. People who didn't try to make excuses and refused to be a burden on anyone else. Somewhere along the way, in the abundance of all their material and economic resources, in their ongoing reputation for success, they became self-deluded. They became self-deceived and forgot, or perhaps simply ignored, the reality of our human condition. That we are not self-made. We are not self-made. We are not independent or autonomous. That everything we have and all that we are, that everything does not depend on us. That Jesus doesn't live for us. But we live thanks to Christ. That apart from the grace of God, we are poor. We are blind. We are naked. Is that how we perceive ourselves, church? Is that how we see ourselves? Do we perceive ourselves as poor, blind, and naked without Jesus? Do we embrace the reflection we are given in Christ's mirror 
of being poor, blind, and naked before God, or are we more intoxicated, punched drunk in love with the myth of our self-sufficiency, the fool's gold of our prized independence? Answer those questions. Let us answer those questions not by merely professing what we believe, Let's allow the practicality of how we live, and I encourage you to be reflecting right now on the practicality, day in, day out, of how you live. How does the practicality of how we live speak to from where and in whom our true faith lies? Do we carry ourselves before others? You know, not, not more at church, never at church, right? But do we carry ourselves before others as being fiercely independent? Badge of honor. Nobody tells me, I tell them. I am the one who makes the rules. I am the one who decides my fate. Do we pride ourselves before others as being fiercely independent, entirely self-reliant? I don't ask for help, I give help. Nobody's in, no, I'm in nobody's debt. I don't owe anybody, nobody, nothing. Do we pride ourselves before others as fiercely independent and entirely self-reliant? Are we always speaking, hear yourself, are we always speaking of our motivation, our success, our achievements, our opinions, our rights? When's the last time? When's the last time we publicly, out loud, not just with what we say, but in how we act. When's the last time publicly out loud we gave the glory to God? We gave the glory to God in Christ for who we are. We gave the glory to God in Christ for where we find ourselves. How do we view ourselves? How do we look at ourselves? Are we possessed by a wonderful self-image? <laughs> Driven by the power within me? Or do we find our identity in the image of God? The person of Jesus, compelled by the power of the Spirit to become who we were created to be in Christ. Are being needy and helpless fundamental flaws that we need to stamp out within us? Or are being needy and helpless the daily posture we're adopting in order to stay centered, to remain rooted, to keep learning and growing thanks to Jesus. I'm gonna challenge us as parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles to show you the reality of how far we are from what is here. We pride ourselves. We consider it good parenting. We are frustrated by others who don't. We teach our kids to grow up and to be able to get, be independent and live on their own to be autonomous, to take care of themselves, to not continually be dependent upon us or anybody else. We teach them that. And ask yourselves, how often did you teach your children an opposite message, which is, you're never gonna grow up, you need to constantly be dependent upon Jesus and helpless, you're never gonna be able to figure out life on your own, Christ is what you need. And the reality that that's not what we're teaching our kids is why our kids are not here, because you have taught them, we have taught them, Jesus is not what they need, they have everything they need, therefore why do they have any purpose of being here? 
They'll be here when they suddenly realize their health is failing. They'll be here all of a sudden when their, their life falls apart because then they'll be receptive to the idea that someone can help them. But we have raised them and taught them they don't need God. They just need to figure out life for themselves, to be independent, to be autonomous. The day we start parenting differently is the day we'll raise a different generation. Somewhere along the way, it seems like a lot of us got, have gotten the message, and again, we've passed it on to our children, that we have to have it all together, that we have to figure out life on our own. But this is in direct opposition to how God created us. This is in direct opposition to why God in Christ gave his life for us. And again, we may think we're immune from adopting this mindset. But the prevailing worldview, declaring that we have all that we need in ourselves, that we don't need God, that is the snare. That's the big lie of original sin. That's the heart of all of our brokenness, right? And it contains and twists everything. That we're going to do it our way. That we can only do it our way. It taints and twists everything, leading us to turn the good things of this life bad. It turns the good things of this life bad because we look to those good things instead of the Lord for our identity, our purpose, and our destiny. Some examples. Working hard. Working hard is good. Working hard is good until I become the job. Have you become the job? When what I do defines my worth, that's not good. That's bad. Gaining and having wealth, hear me, gaining and having wealth and resources is good. Gaining and gathering and building wealth and resources is good until accumulating and holding on to stuff becomes my purpose for being. When I never have enough or can't let go of what I have, then I am a slave to my desires. I am possessed by my so-called possessions, and that's bad. Having credibility matters. Credibility matters. Having credibility matters. It's good until my reputation is what I live for rather than my reputation deriving out of being a credible witness for Christ. When what others say or think about me is solely what drives me, do you like me? Am I good enough? Am I doing a good job? Am I successful enough? Are you proud of me? When what others say or think about me is solely what drives me, then my destiny is one of continued insecurity. I will always be chasing after someone else's approval instead of living, living out of the security and freedom of who Jesus declares me to be. And that's not good. That's bad. When all our sense of worth, belonging, and arrival are measured by what we have, by what we gain, by what we achieve, by what others say about us, we will always end up coming up short, full, but never content, having so much, but never enough. And in the end, when we stand before God, we will possess nothing. 
We will possess nothing other than what God has given us, provided we've had the good sense to take what he's offering, living not our way, but his. You see, you got to read the whole letter because what's crazy and awesome at the same time is all is not lost, even for a self-satisfied community like Lady Osea. All is not lost, and that means all is not lost for any of us. We are never lost, no matter how self-made we may persist in trying to be. Jesus says it plainly. He confronts us because he cares for us. Jesus corrects us because Jesus desires the best for us. If someone doesn't love us, they don't care if we wreck our lives. But even though we've hardened our hearts to Christ, Jesus stands at the door of our complacency. The house we try to build on our own foundation, that sandcastle of which we think we are king. Jesus stands at the door and knocks, standing forever before the threshold of our lives is Jesus, the amen. Jesus, the amen. Amen more than a word of affirmation that means indeed, or truly, or let it be so. More than a word that we end casually at the end of every prayer. Jesus is the amen. The word made flesh, the epitome of the binding certainty of God's yes for us. That's why I love that praise song. All God's promises to us are yes and amen. And Jesus is that yes and amen. The guarantee, the guarantor of the divine promises of forgiveness, healing, redemption, and eternal life. That amen is knocking on your door. The one who persistently knocks on the entryway to our minds and hearts is the faithful and true witness. Jesus is the real deal, people, the genuine article. Some witnesses may tell the truth, but they won't tell it faithfully. And some might be faithful, but not tell the truth all the time. But through his life, death, and resurrection, and ongoing presence through the Holy Spirit, Jesus always tells it like it is. But Christ doesn't just reveal the truth of who we are and who God is. Christ also uniquely leads us into the truth. The truth of God's desires and plans for us. The truth of who we can become thanks to the gospel. This Jesus who just keeps knocking, who refuses to kick in the door that separates us from him, and yet patiently and persistently knocks until we answer. And when we ask, who is it? Declares himself to be the ruler of God's creation. The word translated ruler is from the Greek arche, and it conveys this idea that Jesus as being the ruler of all creation is more than the first in a sequence, that Jesus is the first cause the origin of the sequence. In other words, the one who is knocking on our door is the architect and the landlord. The source, the reason, the pattern for all life, both in the beginning and once again through the new beginning of his resurrection. And Jesus is not just calling us to answer the door, but to come out of the tomb to come out of the cocoon of our perceived self-sufficiency and truly live. Do you hear it? Take heed. Take heed before you answer that door. 
Take heed because Jesus is not merely asking admission into our lives. Jesus is not asking to come and stay as a house guest. Jesus intends an occupation. You answer that door. Jesus intends to fully and completely dwell with us. To overtake, to overturn, to ultimately transform our lives. Beloved, hear me. All are invited. All are invited. Christ welcomes anyone to let him in. But opening the door to Jesus isn't for everyone. Opening the door to Jesus isn't for everyone. If you sit here today and you've clawed rung by rung up the ladder of life and made something of yourself and take great pride in doing things your way, of being large and in charge, then you're likely to walk away from Jesus rather than to follow him. You're likely to hold on to what you've got rather than to sell all you have for treasure in heaven. If you sit here today and you look down your nose at others, if you look at the world around you and perceive a mass of good-for-nothings, people who don't work as hard as you do, who don't deserve what you believed you've earned, if you balk at the notion of being privileged, then the grace of Jesus Christ is going to be meaningless, worthless to you. The grace of Jesus Christ, whether you admit it or not, will be more like a crutch, a handout, something for those who can't help themselves. And as you sit here today and maybe think about the empire you claim, no matter what the size or scope of your reach and influence, if you've walled yourself in, if you've insulated yourself with comfort and convenience from all the troubles of this life, so that you don't have to rub shoulders with those who could use a helping hand, a shoulder to cry on, a listening ear, a whispered prayer, an act of kindness, if you've cut yourself off from the world, then beloved, I'm sorry to tell you, you've already decided to break the greatest commandment of the kingdom of God. Not to love God by loving your neighbor as yourself. And you're doing it all for the sake of building and fortifying your own castle, your own kingdom. And once again, if you sit here today and you're so busy admiring the person you see in the mirror, patting yourself on the back for the size of your moral bank account, discriminately lending aid and support to others out of the wealth of your piety and righteousness, fitting yourself for a homemade halo, then let's get real. You're not going to celebrate when Jesus doesn't give those miserable, rotten failures what they deserve. You're going to be offended. You're going to try to bar the door rather than let it be opened by Christ for all the prodigals who are finally coming home. Following Jesus isn't for everyone. Following Jesus isn't for anyone who insists on doing life their way. But if we are willing to admit our poverty, if we are willing to admit that apart from Christ, we don't have anything, that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing, if we are willing to admit our poverty, then the God who in Christ, though he was rich, 
and for our sake became poor, this God will extend to us gold. Gold, Jesus says. Gold not intended to fill banks, but gold refined by the fires of God's mercy and love. Gold meant to be invested not just in the betterment of our lives, but in the lives of others. If we will finally confess the limitations of our own vision, if we will finally confess that life is more than a good salary, a nice house, and a solid retirement account, if we will confess the limitations of our own vision, then God in Christ who looked death square in the face and said, take me, take me, so that he might take us in his arms beyond the limits of our fears, our failures, and even our mortality, this same Jesus will open our eyes to see everlasting promise and eternal possibilities that are more than we could ever imagine or hope for. If we are willing, if we are willing to at last stop playing dress up and cover our brokenness, trying to hide our guilt and our shame with the threadbare costumes of our presumed power and authority, if we are willing to stop playing dress up and instead to willing to acknowledge that we come into this world naked and we pretty much leave it the same way, then the God who in Christ who knew no sin but became sin for us, will cover us with the robes of forgiveness and salvation that will never wear out or fade away. This last letter, which begins with the harshest words of the seven, ends with the most beautiful invitation of them all. As Jesus, did you catch this? Playfully invites us to buy from him instead of trying to keep cashing in on our own efforts. It's tongue-in-cheek because we can't buy from Jesus what we can't afford by ourselves. We, we can't purchase from Christ what Christ gives us freely. It's funny. It's supposed to be funny. God's riches only come by the grace of Jesus. It's the grace of Jesus which gives, us, gives we who are poor the ability to become rich. The ability to buy, not to earn or achieve, but to trade our self-sufficiency for the sufficiency of Christ. To be equipped, to be provided for, to be made secure and solvent out of the inestimable riches of the gospel. To a tasteless and distasteful church, Jesus extends an invitation to the banquet of Holy Communion. As he keeps knocking, Jesus beckons us, we who have been complacent, who are full of ourselves, to earnestly repent now and to open the door and be filled anew with the word and the spirit. Jesus invites us to dine with him, to put our feet under his table, to open our hands for the bread and the wine that only Christ can provide to us, to share the spiritual food and sustenance that only Jesus can give. And that's why every Sunday we come to the table of Christ. And every Sunday we come to the table of Christ with the same promise Jesus offers to the church at Lady Osea. That if we keep relying solely on him rather than ourselves, if we bring all our hunger, all our thirst, all our fears and our doubts to Christ alone, we will be satisfied. 
Because as Jesus promises, one day our continued fellowship with him at the table will lead us astoundingly, incredibly, to be lifted up and sit with Christ on his throne. On his throne. As the Spirit of the Lord speaks to the church at Laodicea, beloved, the same Spirit, the Spirit of Christ is speaking to us. Before the God who waits patiently for us, even as he urgently keeps knocking on our door, may we stop. Stop trying to live as though I've got this. We've got this. And instead, let Christ in completely, fully into every conversation, every decision of our lives. May we, thanks to the grace of God, not shy away from being consciously and explicitly reminded that life lived on our terms, doing things my way, is a life wasted, is a life that ends in death. That's it. May we realize that it is only life lived in Christ, following Jesus, going his way, that our lives, our lives become something more than a flash in the pan, more than 15 seconds of fame, more than a momentary earthly fortune. They become, by the grace and promise of God, they become lives Again, filled with possibility and promise of learning, growth, and maturity we can only dream of. They become lives of invitation and challenge, of heights and depths of experience that we can scarcely imagine. They become lives that are able to press forward, to keep on keeping on, no matter what our struggle, no matter how big our failure, no matter even death itself stands before us. Because of Christ, they are lives that can be, that are meant to be eternal and everlasting. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. 